Turn your Bibles now to uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 to 16. Um, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses uh, 13 to 16. So we are uh, launching a series called The Church for the Future. And our vision in this uh, whole series is to see what would the future church look like. And the answer to that, it looks a lot like the first century church. And it, it looks a lot like the church in Thessalonica. And so as Paul is writing this letter to this newfound church, he writes these words. Verse 13, and, so, and we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it actually is the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. For you, brothers, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are also in Christ Jesus. You suffer from your own countrymen the same things the churches suffer from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. They displeased God and are hostile to all men in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they will always heap up sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. Let's pray. Uh, Father, thank you again for these words that are found in the book of Thessalonians. And in this section, as Paul is writing to this newborn church, as they're wrestling with this whole question, how do I endure suffering when people persecute us? And so often in our day, Lord, um, we as Christians may uh, not respond well to suffering. Especially us living in America where we have so many conveniences. And maybe our suffering is different than the first century suffering. But the response of any suffering should be the same. And today, Lord, uh, you give us your word to guide us through that process of how do you respond to suffering. So we pray, Lord, that you would remind us of that in Jesus' name. Amen. The question why is a question that I think all of us have asked at some point in our time, in our life. The question of why when it comes to the issue of suffering, and especially when it comes to the issue of, of pain and persecution, why does God allow suffering to take place? Why is there evil in the world? It's probably the most basic question that people ask throughout the ages. And in one sense, it's a real question because every single person uh, on the face of the earth has asked that question at some point, whether you are a Christian or not. And the reality is all of us at some point uh, experience difficulty. And we experience difficulty through the lens of our own personal experience. What's pain for you may not necessarily be pain for me, but in reality, there's still pain. And in America, we are blessed to have uh, a life with very little pain, but yet we sort of describe ourselves as being persecuted people sometimes. And so our problems in America may look a lot different than the problems in Africa. See, we have a term for this, we call it first world problems. First world problems are things like the phone charger cable, uh, you're not able to reach your bed. How about not being able to skip the ads on live TV? How about forgetting where you've parked? Or how about earphones being tangled in your pocket when you take it out? Or being hungry and not having any food in your refrigerator or waiting for videos to buffer? I think one of the worst first world problems is having to wait a whole week for your favorite show to be on TV. Now, for some of us, we say, well, I, it's like, this is the problem of our generation, isn't it? 
well, you know, we don't want to minimize it, but problems in the first world are very different than the problems in the third world. But in reality, they are still problems. In a new book by Tim Keller, he called Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, he said this, that suffering is everywhere unavoidable, and its scope often overwhelms. And if you spend one hour reading this book, more than five children throughout the world will have died from abuse and violence during that time. If you give the entire day to read this book, more than 100 children will have died violently. But this is, of course, only one of the forms and the modes of suffering. Thousands of people die from traffic accidents or cancer every hour, and hundreds of thousands learn that their loved ones are suddenly gone. The reality of suffering in, in all these different forms are part of everyday life. And when you look at the third world, it's a very different uh, suffering. Where uh, recently uh, the Open Doors organization found that approximately 215 million Christians experience high or very high or extreme persecution. North Korea remains the most dangerous place on earth to be a Christian. We see uh, ethnic nationalism fast becoming the major driver of persecution. We see persecution on the rise in almost every single place. And most violent, Pakistan rose to number four on the list of violence exceeding even northern Nigeria. And so all around the world, there are levels of persecution that Christians themselves face. So how do you deal with these problems? How do you deal with persecution? How do you deal with pain? See, your pain is very personal. Some of you are experiencing maybe some emotional challenges, some anxiety issues. Others of you uh, may have experienced sudden death of a loved one, or maybe even divorce, where people who started with such marital bliss have ended their marriage with disconnectedness. Or how about unexpected physical illness, or maybe even disability? All these are realities of everyday life. And as Christians, how we understand suffering is important. And how we deal with it is also important. And one of the things that we are reminded in this book is that suffering is real. And yet how we deal with it, it will either help develop our faith or in some cases for some, will actually destroy their faith. Now imagine if you're a first century Christian living in the time of Paul, and, and Paul's on this missionary journey, and there's this great map of Paul going from place to place, and he goes to Thessalonica, and he, it's, a, it's a city in uh, the, um, the area of, of Asia, oh, not Asia Minor, I'm sorry, the, uh, the Mediterranean in Macedonia, and Thessalonica is a very uh, cosmopolitan city, and it is the capital of Macedonia, and as Paul is there, as he's preaching the gospel, some Christians are formed. And this new church is given birth. But the first thing that happens in Acts chapter 17 is this new church is being persecuted. First by the Jews, but then also by the Roman officials. And everybody begins to wonder, who is this group? Because the Jews see Christians as a threat because they feel it's a cult. And the Romans are fearful that this may actually cause a political uprising. And so these Christians early on suffered greatly. And one of the things about the church is this, that the, throughout the ages, that Christians have always suffered for the name of Jesus. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 16, Peter says, If you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear his name. So the question for us is, is how do we bear the name of Christ? Because suffering is part of the curriculum that God uses to develop us. And if there's one summary point that I would make in this sermon is this, 
Our response to human, su- uh, human suffering is by looking through the lens of God's word, other believers, as well as seeing God's role in our suffering. So today I'm going to talk about those three things. So if we look in that passage again, let me walk you through verse by verse and how Paul begins to help this newfound church to understand suffering through the lens of these three things. The first thing is this, that when we suffer, we need to depend on God's word. That when we suffer, we need to depend on God's word. In verse 13, he says, and we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the words of men, but what actually is the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. Now, the first thing here is that Paul begins this section, he begins with this word of gratitude. And throughout this book, the first thing that Paul says is to be grateful. And so the question for us as Christians, how can you be grateful when you're suffering? It seems to be two polar opposite emotions or reactions. How can we be grateful that we're being persecuted? And so what Paul is saying here in this first verse is that the reason that we can be grateful is that God has given us the means to deal with our suffering. In other words, he has given us a framework to understand our suffering. And that framework is the word of God. Now, what's important here is this, that in this passage, Paul is not talking about what we currently have as the New Testament. The New Testament is the completed revelation of God, all the way from Genesis to the book of Revelation. That's not what Paul's talking about in this specific uh, specific verse. But he is talking about the word of God as it is being written. Now, what's remarkable is this. This is the first book that Paul wrote. First letter that he penned. In other words, Paul is now going to remind the early Christians that God is going to reveal himself to them. And that once the, 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 uh, the way in which they receive it is going to help them endure the persecution. And I think that's pretty remarkable when you think about it. That God does not leave us blinded. Or that God does not lead us in, in this uh, place of absence. Rather, what God does is he reminds us of his divine purpose. And so in the Old Testament, we have this term called general revelation, that God has revealed himself to us already, that everybody's accountable. Why? Because nature declares the glory of God. So in Psalm 19, we see the beauty of creation. He says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. So one thing that God has already revealed is that he exists, that he has created the beauty of all of creation, all of nature. So every single person is accountable to his existence. But it takes more than just to understand that God exists. There's a second level of revelation. We call that special revelation. And that's this, that God has revealed his specific will to us. He has given us the framework of how his creation works. So rather than just making up things, and sort of creating our own little God, God has then revealed himself directly to us through what we call direct revelation. So all the way from Genesis to the book of Revelation, we see God has a complete purpose and plan. And that's the beauty of of what the word of God is. It's the complete purpose and plan of God. And so in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 15 and 17, Paul makes these words. And by the way, 2 Timothy is Paul's last book. So we see this in 1 Thessalonians and 2 Timothy. He says, the sacred writings are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed 
and it's useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. God has given us a complete understanding of how he works. He has given us a complete understanding of his reality. And so when we are going through difficulties, sometimes it may not make sense from our perspective, but when we look into God's word, when we submit ourselves to his word, then some of the things that we're, we're struggling with actually begin to make sense. And here's the thing about God's word. I like what he says here if you look at, um, um, at the end of verse 13. He says, the word of God, he says, is at work in you who believe. In other words, uh, in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13, verse 12, the word of God is living and active. So at, at, at the right time, God will help us understand his divine purpose. And so for us as Christians, that the word of God is the framework for understanding human suffering. It is the understanding of, of why things are the way they are. And so if you want to understand human suffering, you go back to the very beginning. That really human suffering in some sense is self-inflicted. That we have chosen to rebel ourselves from God. And because of that rebellion has uh, created this cosmic domino effect. And we, instead of God, we worship our own God. We call those idols. And because of that, the world suffers. And the effect of creation suffers. Also, we see in Scripture that, that suffering is not just a human suffering, that there's a, a cosmic element to suffering. That in Ephesians chapter 6, we see that there's a spiritual warfare that's going on that is way beyond what we can see. That our, 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 our battle is not only with f flesh and blood, but against the principalities of the air. But here's the other thing about suffering in the Bible. That suffering has a purpose. And that the result of suffering oftentimes leads us to actually to God's kingdom, God's glory, and to our well-being. Even though at the time that we're suffering, it may not make a lot of sense, we cling to the promise of Scripture that says this, that all things work together for good, for those who love God and cult according to His purpose. And then in James chapter uh, 1, verse 2, we say, that consider pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because this testing of your faith develops spiritual maturity. And so the Word of God helps us to understand why suffering exists. And so what Paul is reminding this early church is, don't just rely on your feelings. Don't just rely upon the circumstances, but hear the Word of God that is being preached, believe it, and live it out. You know what the most important ingredient to understanding God's Word is? That now we have the complete revelation of God from Genesis to Revelation. The, 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 the most important tool now that we have is what we call exegesis, correct understanding of Scripture. So it's not enough for us just to read the Bible, with, and if we interpret it wrongly, it creates wrong application. And here's the sad thing for many Christians, is that we just kind of have this uh, interpretation that we get to kind of make up. And as a result, it can lead to faulty theology. Let me give you an illustration. Uh, there's a mega church, uh, uh, a pastor, very large church. I mean, he's a humongous church, and he writes a weekly blog. And in this blog, it's probably the most flawed theology you can ever imagine. Uh, he talks about uh, that the grace of God was upon Jesus, that the Bible says where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. And when you put the two together, you may find yourself asking if the grace of God was on Jesus, 
does it mean that he sins? And so he walks through this logic about how to receive God's grace. And then he says, let's look at the word grace. When is it first mentioned in the Bible? Genesis 6, 8 says that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah's name means rest. So the verse is telling us that rest is found in grace. In other words, when you rest, you find grace. Now, some of you are thinking, wow, that makes sense, doesn't it? Noah's name means rest, therefore he found grace. Therefore, if we rest, we find grace. So here's how the, uh, the logic works. Noah's name means rest. Noah found grace. Therefore, rest found grace. And if we rest, we find grace. Sadly, that's how many Christians interpret Scripture. Is we, we, instead of we call exegeting Scripture, we isogete it. So let me tell you how faulty that kind of the, uh, that. Uh, that type of exegesis can be. Um, if you just take a Hebrew name and you say it means this, then it really creates some really th- bad theology. So let's take another Hebrew name, uh, Esau. Esau means hairy. Okay? In Malachi chapter 1, it says, God said, I love Jacob, but Esau I hated. Therefore, God hates hairy people. Now, if you think about that, that's kind of the logic, right? And let's try Noah again. Noah means rest. After the flood, Noah got drunk and exposed himself. Therefore, when we rest, we should get drunk. Never mind. It it creates this weird theology. And that's why when you understand Scripture, when you read Scripture, to understand the full, complete revelation of God, you have to understand its intent. But when you understand his intent, you begin to understand this is why things happen the way they happen. That even our personal trials that we face, there's an understanding of how God is working in the midst of that. The second thing is this. When we suffer, we need to imitate the past believer's example. The second thing he says is this. At that time, they didn't have the complete Bible. They had people that were already living out their faith, but they also had the Old Testament. And so in verse 14, it says, For you, brothers, became imitators of God's church in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered for your own countrymen the same thing as a church suffered from the Jews, who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. They displease God and are hostile to all men. Remember in chapter 1, Paul says, Be imitators of me. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. One of the one of the things that Paul is constantly reminding us is this, that part of Christian maturity is imitation. And we say that imitation really is discipleship, isn't it? And if you think about it, these early Christians didn't have any other examples. They were the first church. They were the first new town. And so their example was Paul and the Old Testament and Jesus himself. And here's the thing I've learned, is that the way we deal with suffering in our lives is that God has placed godly men and women in our lives to help us walk the path of suffering. You know, the early church suffered greatly. And one of the things about the church is this, throughout its 21 centuries of of existence, that really the persecution, the suffering of the church, is what has made the church what it is. One man said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And God has given us many, many men and women throughout history that have set an example for us 
So we have people that we can imitate. And here's one, one of the things that we emphasize now is, is that all of you are disciple makers. And all of you need to have disciple relationships with somebody because we get to imitate how Christ is to be followed. And the best example are the ones who are right ahead of us. And so if you're a young couple who's getting married, Find an older couple that has gone through the issues that, that a young married couple would go through. If you're a business person who is starting your own business, find somebody who has already started their business and living now. Imitation is really discipleship at its essence. And so Paul says, if you're suffering, let's look at how the Christians suffered in the Old Testament, or like how the believers suffered in the Old Testament. Look at the pattern of Jesus. Yesterday, uh, I was having breakfast with... Uh, a young church planter. He, he had just started a church in Anaheim. Well, actually, he started about a year ago. And they're struggling. Uh, they're meeting in their little apartment. And he was saying, Pastor Ray, I, I just don't know what to do. And so I started to remind him is this, that your greatest asset, your greatest uh, blessing are the people that are ahead of you. The people that you can network with, people that are, are, are a few steps ahead because you can learn a lot from them. Don't do this alone. And then I shared an illustration from my own life. Many years ago, when I was a young uh, teenager, the church I used to attend was a church called Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa. There was a man named Chuck Smith. A few years ago, he, he passed away. It's a huge church. And I remember as a teenager, I would take the bus as a 14-year-old from Irvine all the way to Costa Mesa to attend this church. And I was just so impressed that he could teach the Bible. And I would go there almost every single day of the week. Well... When I was 16 years old, on my 16th birthday, they had a baptism at Corona Del Mar. And I remember going there, and, and Pastor Chuck took my face and slam-dunked me into the river. I was baptized. And, and one of the things that I remember is, is when I looked at Pastor Chuck, you know what I began to imitate? That his whole legacy was a bunch of young hippies that he mentored and discipled. And those hippies went out and started planting churches all across Southern California. All these Calvary chapels came out of Chuck Smith. And as a young teenager, I said, that's what I want to be like. And then later on, as I went to seminary and graduated from seminary, uh, I needed to d develop more as a pastor. And so I found this church down the street called the First Evangelical Free Church at Fullerton. A guy on the radio and uh, in the writing books, his name was Chuck Swindoll. And so I, I became one of their residents, their interns, and I spent a year there, and I learned the power and the importance of preaching God's word. And then after that, the Lord sent me to a church in Washington, D.C., a large immigrant church, over 2,500 members. Uh, it was a Korean church where I was overseeing an English ministry, and this Korean church was one of the most amazing places where the senior pastor was so intelligent. <laughs> He would look through the Bible in the Old Testament and actually read the, the original Hebrew every single day. He would fast every one day, Wednesday. Every single morning, he would pray for two hours. And I learned the power of what a pastor needs to be through prayer. And so these three people became formative in my life. And I look back at who I am today. It's because the people that I have imitated and you know what? As Christians, when we suffer, we forget that there are people that have suffered the same thing that we've suffered. And as a result, we think we're the only one who's suffering. But God has created a legacy, a cloud of witnesses. Now, here's a remarkable thing about the first century. 
There's a book called The Fox's Book of Martyr, which is written in 1563 by a guy named John Fox. And basically it chronicles from the first century all the way uh, to the 16th century of Christians that have suffered. In the early chapters on page 43, it talks about a, a young man named Articus. He was a Macedonian. Articus was a native of Thessalonica. Having been converted by St. Paul, he became his constant companion. He was the apostle at Ephesus during the commotion raised the city of Demetrius. They both received ill treatment upon his occasion from the people they suffered. But here's what they did. They bore with Christian patience, giving kind words in return for abuse. These Christians who suffered in the first century, instead of retaliating, they became a blessing. Now, what's re remarkable about this guy is he's being written about in this book. He, these are the Christians that were converted by Paul's ministry. Eventually, he traveled with Paul, and he went to St. Paul to Rome, where he suffered the same, Paul, uh, same fate as the apostle, being seized as a Christian and beheaded by the command of Emperor Nero. Wow. That's the legacy that we have. The good news is, as, as Christians is that we have people that are way ahead of us. And so when you are struggling, remember that there are other people that have struggled too. And as you begin to imitate them, you begin to start imitating Christ as well. This past week, we had a, a staff meeting in which uh, one of our um, facilities managers began to share about his son who's strict and he found out he has adult onset diabetes being really depressed and so we were praying for him then i said to him you know we have a guy in our church who has on-site adult diabetes he, he, he found that he had diabetes at the age of 30. do you mind if i connect him to your son and this guy's eyes you mean he would do that and i said absolutely that's what we're supposed to do we as Christians have the obligation to set the pattern for other younger believers. And so if this pattern of discipleship really does work, then we follow the people ahead of us, and the people behind us follow us, and we create this chain. And that's how we deal with persecution, is we look at people that have suffered and see what, the way they have endured. So, so if you just read books like this and you read, read Christian biographies, one of the things you'll find out is that in the midst of suffering, that God always is faithful. That we may not see the immediate result or the consequence of what, we're, what, what, what is happening, but ultimately we will see a divine effect of what God intends to do. Lastly, when we suffer, we need to rely on God's role or God's role of justice. Notice what he says in the last verse, in verse 16. He continues on about these uh, uh, believers who are suffering at the hands of, of the Jews and the Gentiles. So in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved, in this way, they also heap upon their sins to the limit. And then he says something interesting, the very last phrase. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. Now, that phrase, the wrath of God has come upon them in last, there's a Greek uh, tense in a verb. It's called the aorist tense. What that means is this, that these people who were persecuting the Christian, God has already judged them, and God's judgment will be certain. And so when it says the wrath of God has come upon them at last, it's this idea that God will take care of the problem. 
That it's not your responsibility to get retribution and revenge. That God's wrath, God's punishment will come upon them. Because what is the human reaction when somebody persecutes us? When somebody says something bad about us, or somebody maybe, uh, as we saw last week, where Paul was accused falsely, what's our reaction? Our natural reaction is to get back at them. So Paul goes back to Deuteronomy 32, verse 5, where it says, Vengeance is mine. I will repay. In Romans chapter 12, he says, Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay. So when you suffer, when you're persecuted, remember this, that God ultimately will be the divine judge. And you know what that does? It helps us to understand that we ourselves don't have to worry about it. That even though some of us have this innate sense of injustice that we need to fight all the time, there are times where we need to back down and just let God handle it. You know, as a pastor... Um, Sometimes, you know, there are things that happen to me and my response is exactly what everybody else's response. So we had rented this house for about nine months, 12 months, uh, 10 months, and uh, uh, we made a large security deposit. At the end of that security deposit, we're supposed to get, oops, my daughter. (laughs) So we're supposed to get this uh, uh, deposit back. And so when the deposit came, um, by the way, you should turn off your cell phones, everybody. When the deposit came back, it was $1,000 less. And so I, I asked the, the, uh, the, uh, the landlord, um, why is it $1,000 less? And the landlord said, um, because you dirty the carpet. No, I said, no, we cleaned it just the way it was. We brought a cleaner. We, we steam cleaned everything. And then she called us back. Okay, no, no, because it was left messy. No, we had the cleaners there on the day. And then she called us back again. She said, no, uh, the, the lawn wasn't taken care of. And I said, but you have a lawn care care person that comes every week, and all your uh, grass is automated by sprinklers. So what do you mean, you know, she goes, no. And so we were going back and forth. So my first reaction was, I'm going to talk to the attorneys in our church. So I picked up the phone, and I called a bunch of our attorneys, and I said, what should I do? And they said, you have a great case. Because in small claims court, if you go there, the landlord is, you know, usually, you know, they go on the side of the renter. And I started to pray. I said, okay, what should I do? I mean, there, part of me felt like it's $1,000. It's like, wow. And, and I didn't want her to do this to other people. But then there was another part of me that said, and, and this is, again, very personal, where the Spirit of God said, just let it go. And it was hard for me to let it go. But part of it was that I needed to let it go for my own spiritual development. And I let it go. Now, some of you who are justice people, you're, you're probably very upset. We should have pursued this. We should have even got more than what you... You're probably right. <laughs> but here's the thing that I want you to have confidence in. So when you suffer, that sometimes you're not going to see justice. Actually, most of the world, there's no justice. President uh, Mobutu resigned as a dictator of uh, this place called uh, D- uh, Democratic Republic of Congo. From 1965 to 1997, he was a dictator. Uh, he was uh, the worst thing you could ever think of uh, what a leader would do. And after some political changes, Mobutu was forced out of power. The country collapsed, descended into conflict and chaos. And this one British pastor named Mark Mayhill tells a story of one of his friends, a, a man named Emma, 
who witnessed many atrocities committed against his friends and family members. He and his wife and three daughters had to flee east on foot to Uganda as refugees. After a few months of miserable existence, he walked past the seminary and he sensed God's calling on him. So the family had started to live in a one-bedroom little room without any water or electricity, enough to pay for one meal every two days. Mayhill said that one evening they met in a, the seminary's small li- library and started talking. As Emma opened his heart and shared the story of violence and injustice he, has, he had witnessed, he started to openly weep. Despite the fact that African men very rarely ever cry in public, then Emma said these sobering words. You know, Mark, I could have never believed the gospel if it were not for the judgment of God. Because I will never get justice in this world, but I couldn't cope if I was never going to see justice not being done. Then Mihail commented, we in the West often recoil from God's justice. From a simple, very simple reason. Because hardly any of us suffer injustice. But most people around the globe recognize God's justice is praiseworthy and great. Of course, His mercy and redemptions are great. But we need His perfect justice as well. And so when Paul is telling the Thessalonians, as all these people are uh, persecuting, remember this, that God will judge them. Don't worry about them. Just preach the gospel. And you know, there's a second part to God's, justice, God's role. It's not only that God will give justice, God will also provide protection. It doesn't mean that everything will go easy, but you know what? Here's the thing I begin to realize. That God superintends every aspect of our lives. That God is beside us, oftentimes riding shotgun when we don't even realize it. I think if we had a divine VCR in heaven or whatever they call it now, <laughs> if you go and, and, and God were to rewind all of your life and say, look, you see that part right over there? You don't even know this, but, but I saved you. Do you remember that other part where, where you, you were, uh, uh, weren't looking and, and, and a truck was coming and the truck swerved the other way? I protected you. See, sometimes we don't realize that God's justice is not about making things right. God's justice is also about protecting his righteousness. William Cooper was a man, a Christian man who lived many years ago. He was a hymn writer, Christian. But he suffered something very deeply that very few people knew about. He suffered through many types of suffering, and part of it was depression. There was a time that he experienced such great depression that one night he decided that, it was, that this was it. He was going to take his life. He was going to commit suicide by drowning himself, throwing himself into the Thames River in London. So he walked outside his front door, and he called for a cab and and told the driver to take him to the river. However, out of nowhere, a storm came through as the cab was driving, and a fog came upon the city that was so thick that the driver could not see where he was going. Cooper insisted, keep on going, keep on going. So the driver kept on driving. But finally, after driving around lost for a while, the cabbie finally stopped and said, I got to let you out. I have no idea where I am, and I can't, I, I, I don't see, uh, I can't see where I, I'm going. So he led Cooper out to Cooper's surprise. He was right in front of his own doorsteps. And he looked back, and the cab was gone. God had sent 
the blackest moments, and during that blackest, uh, blackest storm and fog to keep him from killing himself. And he saw that even in our darkest moments, God is with us and in control. Cooper went into the house and he penned these, this hymn that many people sing today. It says this, God moves in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform. He plants his steps in the sea and he rides upon the storm. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The cloud ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break. In the blessing on your head, judge not by the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides his smiley face. No matter what you're going through, remember God has a role to play. God is not absent. God is not distant. And part of our suffering is a reminder that, that yes, this world is broken, but also Jesus suffered for us. And the great message of the gospel is this, that in our darkest, difficult moments where death is imminent, where we are suffering, that there will always be a resurrection. You know, we take communion every month, and we don't take it because we, we do it as a ritual. We take it because it reminds us of who Jesus is. Are you suffering right now? Are you going through some, some maybe internal suffering, persecution, trials, whatever we call it? I would like for you to reflect upon what Jesus did for you, that his body was broken and his blood was shed so that you can have life. Past morning, as I was walking out of this, uh, the sanctuary at our Sunkist Anaheim campus, I came upon one of our members. She looked at me and she said, Pastor Ray, I just want to so thank you for the message. See, about three months ago, she was diagnosed with cancer, pretty serious cancer. So she had this little hat on, no hair. She was in the very last phases of chemotherapy. And she says, Pastor Ray, I just want you to know something. Thank you so much for reminding me that even in this moment, that God is present. And she said, I just got news that, that, that cancer is, is almost gone. And they don't, it's, 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 it's pretty amazing. And I reminded her that. You know, there's no guarantee that this world would be easy. But there is always a guarantee that God will be with us.